Hey there. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is put out into the world by Living Water Community Church, located in Ypsilanti, Michigan. I'm Pastor Clark Cothern. If you'd like to know more about Living Water, or if you'd like to drop us a note, or if you've got a question, or if you'd like to have us pray for you, head on over to lw-cc.org. Now, let's join today's podcast in progress. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Anybody recognize that reference? Mark does. I knew he would. Well, it's from Malachi. Malachi is not a book we study too often. Um, And I think it's appropriate that we reflect on that verse just having celebrated Christmas. Now, you notice, at least in the NIV, they didn't capitalize sun, and they didn't put an O in it, so it's a reference to the the sun, Jesus Christ. Although in Malachi, he does make references to the coming day of the Lord and the Messiah in different ways. Uh, But I think what he's talking about, this is kind of a a metaphor for uh, a new day is dawning. And that's exactly what Christ preached. You know, the kingdom of God is now at hand. It's here among us. And Malachi was looking forward to that day when um, righteousness would reveal itself and we would all be... uh, have access to that righteousness and know what that righteousness really meant. And, and he says, we're going to be really happy when that happens. Um, you know, I know it's a little wet outside, so maybe when you um, just leave the sanctuary, you could leap around a little bit like calves, just so I know that, that you're happy. And for those of you that are a little rusty on how to leap around like calves, When's the last time you felt like that? (laughs) At the end of winter when the snow finally melts, it's just, you can tell, they're they're just really glad to be outside. And we we should really be glad to live in the age we do and with the way God has blessed us as he has. And not just with material blessings, but the gift of his only son. Um, So, obviously, I'm going to speak out of uh, Malachi. And you might ask, well, why Malachi? Well, I think there's, other than the fact that I like Malachi, there's a couple of good reasons. It's a really good message to going into the new year. Um, and it has a really unique style. It's different some, from the style of some of the other prophets. And it's a preview of the upcoming Winter Bible Study. So this is an advertisement for the upcoming Winter Bible Study. January 25th and 26th, we're going to do a survey of the Old Testament historical books but we're going to look at it through the eyes of five different prophets, and each of the elders are going to um, put that prophet character on, and they're going to act like the, that prophet for a little bit of time and answer some questions. And then they're going to look at what was going on in the nation of Israel, uh, and why was God trying to you, what was God trying to say through these prophets? Uh, now, the historical books in the Old Testament, obviously it starts at Genesis, but we're talking about the period that starts with First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, which is really a, an over, overlays on top of First and Second Kings, covers the same time period, 
uh, more from a priestly view than from a, a strictly um, kingly view. Um, then we're, then uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther are all the historical books that cover the time when the prophets were prophesying. Um, and that covers um, roughly 600 years of history, uh, 1051. And these are all estimates. These, you know, there's a lot of evidence that points to, it's hard to figure out the exact year, but these are pretty, pretty close and the time frame is, is pretty well understood. Uh, 1051 BC, Saul becomes king. He reigns 40 years. David becomes king. He reigns 40 years. Solomon, his son, becomes king. Um, 40 years later, Solomon dies and the kingdom is split in half. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The kingdom originally was formed by 12 tribes, the, the 12 sons of Jacob, and we're going to look at Jacob. Um, and 10 of the tribes split away from two of the tribes. So if you hear reference now to the 10 lost tribes, because the northern kingdom was totally destroyed, um, that's what they're referring to. And you know the Mormons have some take on that, and there's a lot of different takes on what those 10 tribes uh, represent or what, what they mean. Are they gonna be reunited again? It really doesn't matter. Um, 720, Assyria, conquers um, the northern kingdom. Assyria is just north of them, where Syria and Iraq would be today. They conquer the northern kingdom, and they take them away in captivity. They intermarry with them. They basically um, destroy their culture, except for a very small minority that continue to practice their form of Judaism, and they're known as the Samaritans. So in the New Testament, when you hear the Samaritans, those are the northern kingdom people that were conquered by Assyria that continue to worship God in, in their own way. And of course, Jesus has that great interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well. Um, 140 years later, 130 years later, Judah, the southern kingdom, is conquered by the Babylonians. And instead of just scattering them, they take a bunch of them and they take them back into captivity in Babylonia. And then roughly uh, 515, another um, 60 years later, some of those exiled people, they still have their Judaistic traditions and still worship. They come back to Jerusalem. And then in 467, Ezra comes back to Jerusalem and he's, he's a leader, he's a priest, he reads uh, the word. And uh, at the temple, they rebuild the temple. And then a little bit later, Nehemiah comes back. So if you read the books of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, that's the story of when they came back and were in Jerusalem after the ex an exiled group of Hebrews had come back. Ne Malachi was, was written during that time period, during the time period of Ezra and Nehemiah. So he is talking to the Jews that had come back to Israel, rebuilt the temple, maybe a couple of generations later, and just in a couple of generations, God, God has some complaints with the way, way they're behaving. You know, the fact that they could come back and rebuild the temple a couple of generations later, they had forgotten what their parents went through and how blessed they were because God had, had miraculously brought them back. So Malachi was written, and some of the issues he addresses are also addressed in... Uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, particularly Nehemiah.
Um, so Malachi's unique style, he, he had a complaint um, against God, or God had a complaint against them, and he's got a unique style of uh, disputation. Disputation is simply making an argument for your point, trying to convince somebody that what you're saying is correct. And his style was um, God would make a statement, like he makes the statement, I have loved you, says the Lord. And then God puts a question he asks a question on behalf of the people that reflects the people's real attitude towards that statement. So then he says, but you ask, how have you loved me? And then God goes on to answer that question. To answer the question that he knows the people are thinking and are asking in their mind. Um, and I think it's a relevant message as we look through several of these exchanges. It's a relevant message for us going into the new year because it gives us a chance to uh, kind of do a spiritual um, checkup. How are we doing spirit spiritually? And at the five specific questions that they ask, I put a little checkup in your bulletin that maybe you want to take that home and between now and the end of the year, just give a little thought to what has gone on in your life in the past year and how is God maybe speaking to you through uh, Malachi. So let's go ahead and look at um, these five questions. Question number one is in Malachi 1, uh, verse 2 and 3. Um, and we already started on that. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? And God answers, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Well, we need a little background for that. I mean, what's going on there? Well, Abram, Abram who became Abraham and Sarah, when they were very old, had a son. His name was Isaac. And Isaac married Rebekah. And they had twins. And the twins were Esau and Jacob. And God foretold that... Uh, Jacob was going to rule over Esau. But Esau was born first, so he was the firstborn son. But it said that Jacob was grasping at his heels when, when Esau came out. It's like they were struggling in the womb, and Jacob wanted to come out first. And that kind of characterizes his, his life. Um, later on, Esau was a very uh, manly man. You know, He liked to go out and hunt and kill his own food. And I don't think he liked to cook, though. So coming back from a hunt... Uh, he was very hungry, and Jacob had Jake, Jacob was maybe a mama's boy a little bit. He spent more time with his mom. He knew how to cook, and he had cooked this really delicious stew, and Esau said, give me some of that stew, and Jacob, always the thinker, said, give me your birthright, and I'll give you the stew. And Esau, the more driven by his instincts and his desires, said, sure, I'll give you my birthright for the stew. And then later on, Jacob, with Rebekah's help, his mother, tricked Isaac, the father, into giving Jacob the blessing that was supposed to go to Esau. So right off the bat, you know, during their, their life, when their parents were alive, there's a lot of animosity and struggling and uh, back and forth between Esau and Jacob. Well, Esau, once the blessing had been given to Jacob instead of himself, he goes off and marries one of the daughters. He had other wives, but he married one of the daughters of Ishmael. Now you remember who Ishmael is? Ishmael is the son of Abraham 
by Sarah's handmaiden, by Hagar. And Ishmael is really the, the origin of, of the, uh, um, the Arab, Arabs today. And uh, Isaac, Jacob, is the father. Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. Um, Esau's offspring become a nation in and of themselves. He's blessed as well in that, in that way because he becomes the father of a, a big nation, a lot of people. And they end up, when Israel comes back after the... Uh, um, slavery in Egypt, when they're delivered out of that, uh, Esau's nation, his descendants, which are the nation of Edom, become um, adversaries, and they, they fight and they have conflicts. So what God is saying here, because ultimately Edom was defeated, God is saying, Jacob was the father I promised of, of your nation. He was the person that my covenant was going to be followed through. Even though Edom became a great enemy, I took care of Edom for you. You know, I destroyed them, and, and uh, so you could live in the land of Cana without them as your enemy. So he was showing his love to them by protecting them. Um, that's one way God shows his love, and of course we have a much better picture today of what God's love is because we can look back at Christ and see what he did and what God did through him. But uh, these people didn't have Christ, but they really had a good picture of what God had done for them just in their personal lives, if they'd spent time to reflect on that. But just look what had happened a couple of generations earlier with these people. Their, their fathers and grandfathers and maybe great grandparents had come back out of exile. They were able to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. They were able to rebuild the temple. They were able to start worshiping again in, in the old ways that they used to. And it's like this generation just kind of forgot about that. And God had to remind them but saying, I have loved you, I have protected you, and I have blessed you. Remember that. Question number two. Malachi 1, verses 6 and 8. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But again you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Um, God Almighty deserves our honor and respect, and he demands it. Uh, the priests of all people should have known that. Part, part of the sacrificial system was uh, when they sacrificed an animal for an atonement of something, the animal was supposed to be perfect, without any blemish. And apparently they, they were giving blemished animals. They were sacrificing lambs, that weren't perfect, that had, uh, were lame, or maybe their coats weren't perfect. And of all people, they should have known better. You know, they're the ones that, that should have known what the law was. And to them, it seems like the sacrificial system had just become a ritual to them. It didn't really mean anything. Um, and in reality, they had become kind of a privileged class. People would bring animals to them to sacrifice and they could benefit from those animals because they were able to keep those animals for, 
for food. And it kind of begs the question is, uh, what were the priests doing with the good animals? Well, they may have been keeping them for themselves to eat, but eating a three-legged lamb versus a four-legged lamb, they, I don't think they taste a lot different. So I, I just kind of wondered, you know, maybe they were using these perfect animals to make money for themselves. Maybe they were reselling them because they were perfect and they were sacrificing the ones that weren't worth anything. Exactly the opposite of what is God, God was asking of them. Give me the perfect because I am perfect and I deserve that. And the way you honor me is by doing that. So that's the second question. How have we shown contempt for your name? Malachi um, chapter 2, 17, uh, the interchange number 3 here. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? You know, just reading the first two verses, you have wearied the Lord with your words, and the people respond, how have we wearied him? Um, The first thought is, well, maybe they were just when they go to a temple to worship or to sing the psalms, it, it was just a ritual. It didn't have any meaning to it. There was no heart behind it. It was just what you did on Sabbath day. You went to the temple and you, you sang the psalms that were appropriate for that day. And they were wearying God with those words. But, but this is much, much worse than that. It's not just that they were um, saying me, uh, meaningless things to them that were meaningless. They were actually saying that people that were doing evil were good in the eyes of the Lord. Doing evil was a good thing. And kind of the underlying question really is they were wondering, these guys are bad, they're getting blessed, they have lots of things that I don't have. Um, Why isn't God judging them? They're evil. Well, it must be that God loves evil. That was the conclusion that they had reached. That God says he was wearied kind of indicates that this was an ongoing situation, right? This didn't happen once or twice. This was kind of the general attitude of the people. Some people didn't care about God at all and they were being blessed with material things and and power and and popularity. Um, and, And to us, it looks like they're successful because sometimes we measure success and they were measuring success in worldly terms where God measures uh, blessings not in material things but in our relationship with him that's how we have uh, we are blessed because we can have this relationship with God and they were wearying the Lord with this complaint that why don't you judge those well, they need to go back a couple questions, and God did judge, right? He judged Edom at the right time. And in fact, in other sections of Malachi, he clearly shows, looking forward, that God is going to judge not just the nation of Israel, but all the nations. Uh, question number four, or interchange number four. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, 
and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. As you read through the Old Testament and the historical books, it seems like there, there were through three, three different things, three different principles that Israel never got good at. They never got very good at practicing these in a, in a regular, regular way. One of them was tithing. In the Old Testament, a tithe was a tenth. Uh, and the idea was uh, at the end of the year, what, what you had made or how your, uh, your property and stuff had increased, you gave a tenth back to the God, gave a tenth back to God through the temple, gave it back to the priest, and it was available then to do God's work, which may be building the temple or maybe that type of thing. But I think the other thing may have been uh, that was available to help people that didn't have enough. So the tithing not only uh, benefited the priestly class that received the tithe, but I think they were supposed to be generous with that and, and support the poor among them. Um, so tithing, giving a tenth of, of what you, you earn or have every year. Uh, the Sabbath year, every seventh year, God asks uh, the nation, Israel, to let their land, let their farmland lay fallow. Don't plant anything in it. Well, we know today that that's good farming practice, right? If you, if you plant the same crop over and over and over again, you can't sustain that. So it, it really is healthy for the, for the land to let it lie fallow for a year, let it re regenerate itself. But that's not the only point that God was trying to make. He wasn't just teaching him how to farm. Uh, if you let your land go fallow every seven years, one, one, one year out of seven, um, what do you eat that year? Or what do you eat the next year when you couldn't plant crops? So what you're saying is that by doing that, I'm trusting that God is going to provide. That the year after I let him lie fallow, God is going to provide. He's going to provide the food and the, the produce that we need to survive. And it's practicing good stewardship. Because in the six years leading up to that, if you practice good stewardship and with the, the, the produce and the, the harvest off the land that you get in those six years, you should have enough to help you get through the seventh year. So it's not just about how much money can I make off of this? I want to make as much money as I can. It's about uh, being good stewards of what had God had given you and and then making that available in the years when, when your, your fields go fallow. And the other one is, is we don't hear a lot about. It's what's called the year of Jubilee. Every seven cycles of this Sabbath year, it's like on the 49th year, and there's some argument whether it's the 49th year or the 50th year, but I'll just go with the 49th year. So the seventh seven-year Sabbath, debts were forgiven, Anybody that owed you money at that point, their debt was forgiven. Uh, slaves were freed, and maybe not so much slaves, but indentured servants, people that had nothing and then would, would contract themselves out for a year or two or three or longer so they could work and be provided for. Indentured servants were to be let free. And the land was supposed to return to the original owner. Well, that's pretty tough. Right? It, it, it kind of makes you not want to loan money out, right? At least not near that year of Jubilee. But they never really practiced any one of those three with any regularity. 
And what God is saying, and he's not talking about the other two, but I think it, it, kind of underneath the, uh, in the background, they, you may think about these t- as well, that God is saying, um, trust me. I will provide your needs. Trust me. And the way you can show you trust me is by tithing, by giving back to me a tenth of what you've been blessed with, what you've prospered with. And the people uh, weren't, weren't doing that. We move on to the last uh, interchange. Um, Malachi 3, 13 through 15. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying on the requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Kind of harkens back to the one we looked at uh, a couple ago. A little different spin on it, though. That, that They're wondering, you know, um, we're following his requirements, and it seems really hard to us. You know, it, we feel like we're mourning because we, we're not experiencing the blessings that these other people are. So they viewed serving God, obeying God, as a burden to bear. And I think they felt they knew better than God. You know, the, the, the things that they did have, they didn't um, recognize it at things that God had given them. Serving the Lord was a burden. Um, those that don't serve the Lord get, best, uh, get blessed, so I might as well not serve the Lord. I can get blessed too that way. But as I mentioned maybe a little bit ago, um, their definition of blessed was different than God's definition of blessed. Blessings from God aren't just material things. They're the, the relationship we can have with him. Okay, so let's kind of look at review here. Well, you know, this was written, what, 2,400 years ago? Um, it's written to a different people. Is, is this relevant to us? Now, we don't have a central temple, you know, where, where God resides. We don't have to go to the temple to experience it. God. That's not a requirement. We don't have a codified sacrificial system to atone for sin. We don't have to bring doves or sheep, you know, to the priests and have them sacrifice on our behalf. Uh, we don't have a, a regimented system of different offerings throughout the year. You know, every feast you, you had an offering to bring and for different events or different things in your life, you were supposed to bring a different type of offering. We don't live under that type of a condition. We don't live under the Old Testament tithing system. Uh, we don't have a priestly class between us and God, right? So this isn't relevant to us. Uh, we're, we're, not, we're nowhere like that at all. You know, how do we relate to this? Well, every one of those statements, there's a New Testament equivalent to it that's much more powerful and much more profound than what we see in the Old Testament. We are each a temple because the Holy Spirit, God, dwells within us. We are the temple. We don't have to go to the temple. We are the temple. Jesus Christ is the once and for all sacrifice for the atonement of sin. We know that now. So we don't have to do these... uh, sacrifices at various times of the year or various things that happen in our life because Christ was the perfect sacrifice 
and we all share in the benefit of that. We are called to offer ourselves back to God. I mean, God wants our gifts and uh, money and various things that we can donate to his cause. But what he really wants is ourselves. He wants us to be the offering that we offer back to him. Because in, in, in reality, that's all we have. And even that was given to us by God, right? We are here because God chose to give us life. Um, tithing, you know, Jesus raised the bar. He called for sacrificial giving, not just a tenth. And I think a tenth is still a, a, a number to think about when you're contemplating what to tithe. But Jesus called for sacrificial giving. Giving that, that hurts a little bit. And it can be more than just money. It can be doing things for God when you'd rather be doing other things. And lastly, um, we don't have priests because we're all a priest. Hebrew says that. We are priests and we have direct access to God ourselves. We don't need an intermediary between us and God. Well, actually, we have one. We have Jesus Christ as our intermediary. But he allows us, through what he did, to have uh, direct access and fellowship with God himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So going into a new year, I, I think it's a good time to maybe kind of think on these questions and kind of reflect back on this past year and um, where, how would you answer some of these questions? Or, or would you reflect the same type of attitude that um, the people did, that God put in the, the, the mouths of the people there? Would we reflect that same type of an attitude? And not only a, a checklist for this year, but looking forward to next year, maybe uh, reflect on some things that maybe God would have challenge us with things that we need to consider next year. Well, we know God had loved us, but do we reflect on how much he really, really loves us? Do we recognize God's provision and protection over us just in this past year? His protection over us and our family? There, there are uh, probably daily God protects us in some way or provides for us in some way that we never realize. We never go back and recognize, oh, that was God's hand in that. That was God's provision. When times get tough, it's more easy to see how God provides through his family and in other ways. But when times are good, it's really hard to continually reflect because we feel we're blessed. God is blessing us. And sometimes we get the attitude, God is blessing us because I'm doing things right. And that's not always the case. Um, so that's one question. To, to take a look at how God really loves us and what, what that means uh, to us in our personal lives. Um, how have we shown contempt for your name? We are both the priest and the offering. The priests were showing contempt for God's name by sacrificing blemished animals, sacrificing less than the perfect. Um, do we offer God the best or the convenient? Do we offer back to God the things that we have that are the best or do we offer things that are convenient to us? Uh, there's a story uh, about a former pastor that one of his parishioners uh, gave him some canned peaches and you know they were really nice canned peaches. They were a little brown. You know how peaches get brown if you don't get them canned quickly. 
and you know they were delicious. He really liked them. But at, a little bit later, he had uh, opportunity to go to this person's home, and he happened to see the cabinet that had these glass jars of peaches that were perfect, perfectly peach colored, no brown on them. So do we offer God? And I think you know I do that myself. You've cut a piece of pie, and you're going to share it with somebody. You know which one do you want to take? The one that looks better, the one that's a little bit bigger, whatever it is, you know. We do that all the time. So do we offer God the best of who we are and the best that we can do? Or do we just offer him things because it's, those are convenient to give to him. They don't cost us anything. Um, how have we wearied him? Uh, do we attribute the blessings we have to our own hard work? Now, the blessings we do have, well, God has blessed me because I'm doing good. And are we envious of the material blessings that others have? To the extent that we say, it doesn't matter whether you're serving God or not. People that don't serve God get blessed. Again, a misunderstanding of what blessed means. Um, Next question. uh, How are we robbing you? Do we treat our possessions as ours or God's? That was kind of the point of the Jubilee, the year of the Jubilee. You give your land back, you free your slaves, you forgive all debts, because those things don't belong to you, they belong to God. God gave them the land. God gave us our life, he gives us everything that we have. It's his, it's still his, it's on loan to us. So do we treat it as something we've earned or that we owned, or do we treat it as God's possession that we are to be good stewards of? Do we give to God first? Or do we give out of the excess that we have? Do we give when it hurts? Or do we give out of the extra we have? We've met our needs. We've met our wants. Whatever's left over, I'll give back to God. And lastly, um, what have we said against you? Is serving God a burden that we have to bear? Or is it a blessing, a privilege that we should enjoy? And I think too many times, and I'm, I'm guilty of all of these, too many times we, we view serving God, well, I have to get up and do this, and I really don't want to do that. And We start to view it as a chore, as a burden, rather than realizing what a privilege it is to serve God in the ways that he calls us. And do we equate God's blessings with, with worldly success? God does bless us with, with material things. And he's blessed the nation that we live in with material things. And one of the things we need to recognize is he's not blessing us because we're good. He's blessing us because he loves us. And the people that he's not blessing with those things, it doesn't mean that he doesn't love them anymore. I think he's saying that you're all part of one body and the blessings that I've given you corporately should be shared among you corporately. So that everybody in the body, the whole reason deacons were established was so that the widows and the orphans, those that didn't have those things, could be taken care of. So do we equate God's blessing with our, our own success? So maybe um, in the next few days, or even into the first of the year, if you want to take that checklist, take it home, maybe pray over it, maybe read the scriptures again. 
and give some thought to uh, maybe what God's calling you to do uh, pertaining to your own attitudes or some of these things. We like to think I'm not anything like the Hebrews were. I'm not anything like them at all. It's a totally different situation. But in fact, people are people and people haven't changed since the very beginning. So we are like them in a slightly different way. And in fact, because of our, our knowledge of Christ, we're, we're more responsible for the way we behave and the way we do these things because we have a fuller knowledge of what God's love really means to us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you this morning for your message out of Malachi. Written a long time ago uh, to a people in a different land, different culture. But really, all of Scripture has uh, truth to teach us about ourselves and about you, who you are, uh, what you are, what your character is, and the same things about us, who we are, what our character is like, and how we fall short of um, the ideal of what you would have us to be. And through the gift of your son and the fellowship with you, we can start to become more and more like the person uh, that you want us to be in this lifetime. And ultimately, uh, we know that when we're with you in heaven, that we'll be perfected in that way. And we thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen.